0: Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance Movement.
1: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs
0: shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible.
1: Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder.
2: This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today the second part of our NATO doubleheader. Yesterday, we explored the inside story of the contentious process, particularly between the United States and Russia, that led to NATO's significant expansion in the 1990s. Publicly, however, it was all partnership and positivity, as expressed by then-NATO Secretary General Javier Solana, On July 24, 1997, just a few weeks after Hungary, Poland and the Czech Republic were welcomed into NATO. Only six months ago, many commentators were arguing that we would have to choose between NATO's enlargement and Russia. We have since learned that we can have both, first class, new members of NATO, and it transformed NATO-Russia relationship. Russian President Vladimir Putin has seen NATO expansion as a threat to Russian security and an inexhaustible source of fuel for his personal grievances. Putin's war on Ukraine is in part a violent effort to end Kyiv's desire to join NATO and to push back the alliance from Russia's borders. But by that measure, Vladimir Putin has failed. Because NATO is not shrinking. It is on the cusp of expanding yet again. Finland, which shares a long border with Russia, and Sweden, next door, have stayed out of NATO for 75 years. But both countries are now poised to join the alliance. Sana Marin, Finland's prime minister, made that much clear at a press conference last week.
3: I won't give any kind of timetable. Uh, when we will make our decisions. But I think it will happen uh,
2: quite fast, uh, within weeks, not within months. Finnish and Swedish opinion polls show a recent surge in support for NATO membership. It's a sudden and significant change. Sweden's Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson is also leader of Sweden's Social Democratic Party, which has opposed NATO membership for its entire existence. But to her, Putin's Ukraine invasion reflects an era-defining shift.
0: I think, as I have said so many times, this is a very important uh, time in history. Uh, There is a before and after 24th of February. Uh, The uh, security landscape has completely changed, uh, both with the demands from Russia in in, uh, December and then the invasion of Ukraine. And given that situation, we have to really think through what is best for Sweden and our security and our peace in this new situation. Today,
2: we'll be talking about this new situation. NATO now and in the future. What impact will NATO's expansion have on European security and Russia's military posture? How will a decision now, made in the midst of a terrible war, influence what it will take to achieve a new, lasting peace on the European continent? Well, Heli Hautala is a Finnish diplomat. She served in the Finnish embassy in Moscow and led the NATO team at the Finnish Foreign Ministry. She's currently a visiting fellow at the Center for a New American Security, and she joins us now from Washington. Heli Hautala, welcome to On Point. Thanks for having me. I was wondering if you might first tell us... Uh, in the days after february twenty fourth when uh, we all the world witnessed Russian tanks roll into Ukraine um how quickly did your thoughts turn to the implications of the of the of Putin's U- Ukraine attack potentially on Finland
3: uh Obviously, the Russian aggression was a huge shock in Finland. There were obviously warning signs. People were worried. But still, it was hard to believe that Russia actually decided to reinvade Ukraine. And obviously, due to our historical experiences, we fought twice with the Soviet Union during the World War II. So an attack by Russia on its neighbor, I mean, brings back those memories. And it made people worried. Did it make you worry? No, uh, because I still think that the, the, the position of Ukraine and the position of Finland is vastly different from historical reasons. For instance, Finland was never part of the Soviet Union. And also there is a big difference that Finland is part of the European Union and Ukraine is not. Hmm. So the the assessment in Finland has basically been that the threat of a direct military attack by Russia uh, to Finland. I mean, it's not very likely. So there was not fear of a Russian invasion, but there was a deep worry about what will happen in Europe next. I mean, the world we knew ended and there is still huge uncertainty. What's, what's going to happen? How wh- How is the Europe security situation Is Europe going to look like?
2: From now on. Okay. I want to come back to what you just said in a moment, uh, Heli. But if I may, um, it it's fascinating to know that you served in the Finnish embassy in Moscow and also mm-hmm. obviously have deep uh, experience as leading the NATO team at the Finnish foreign ministry. But can you tell me a little bit from your personal experience? So what was it like being uh, you know, a Finnish diplomat in, in Moscow while, while you were there? I mean, how did you feel the particular or experience a particular relationship that Russia until... February 24th of this year, you know, had with Finland and other Nordic states?
3: I mean, I've served there basically three times, 2005, then 2011, 13, and then uh, a couple of years ago. And Russia has changed uh, during those, you know, 17 years since I first lived there. Um, So I don't see that the Russian attitudes towards Finland and the Nordic state has been pretty constant. Because the Russian position has been that they do not want, they don't wish to see Finland and Sweden joining NATO. And that has been their position. And they have constantly been saying, also publicly, the message has been that you are free to join, but there will be a price to pay. But they have never specified exactly what that price will be. And now recently, in December, when they... um, Submitted those draft agreements, which basically said that NATO shouldn't enlarge further and it should actually retrench uh, from what it has been doing after the, the big enlargement. So then they started talking about military political consequences. And they had, the message has constantly been that we appreciate. They use the term neutrality, which is not correct. I mean, Finland and Sweden are militarily non-aligned. We cannot be neutral because we are a member of the EU. Uh, so their message has been that you know stay neutral, be a constructive member by staying outside alliances. You will kind of guarantee the security and stability in Northern Europe.
2: Mm. Okay, so let's talk about that history for a moment mm-hmm. and, and the distinction that you make between uh, the concept of neutrality and Finland and Sweden being militarily mm-hmm. non-aligned. <laughs> yes. Uh, so so can you tell us the the origin of that stance though uh, that that Finland in particular had and then and the balance essentially that it's struck uh, between being an EU member nation uh, and having uh, Russia as as literally a, a neighbor that shares a border.
3: Yes, because Finland was perhaps in a position of forced neutrality before the collapse of the Soviet Union. We had a friendship treaty with the Soviet Union, which basically, you know, the the, the situation was that we were having you know, friend relations with Russia. We had limitations, you know, how well how we can integrate with the West and finland tried to make the best of the situation declaring itself neutral but the soviet union had even difficulties accepting that but that was the position of finland that we are a neutral country sweden had a long history of neutrality you know goes back you know 200 years but the neutrality ended then when both countries acceded to the european union in 95 uh, so we were no longer neutral, but we were military non-aligned. But EU membership doesn't prevent, you know, individual countries of having bilateral relations with third countries, such as Russia. So Finland and Sweden both have their bilateral relationship with Russia. But that obviously happens in the context of EU membership. I mean, Finland is, we, Finland is part of the group when positions regarding Russia are formulated. And when those have been accepted, Finland fully stands behind those positions which obviously means that we cannot be neutral. We are part of the EU, we fully support the EU line, which we have ourselves been, you know, involved in making. And then we kind of um, work within those frameworks.
2: Hmm. It's not clear to me, uh, Heli, based on what you said a minute or two ago, if if you think that Finland should join NATO.
3: At this point, my personal view is that... uh, In this situation, that is the only kind of logical and and, and a wise move. Previously, Finland's aim was to have, you know, good bilateral relationship with Russia and, you know, basically avoid provoking Russia unnecessarily. Uh, The thinking was that joining NATO then would cause a serious crisis in those relations and would be an unwise move. But now, after after February 24th, you know, that past doesn't exist anymore, and we cannot go back to that position.
2: Mm. Uh, Heli, are you still there? We've been having uh, technical difficulties all week long here. So let's bring in, uh, as we try to get Heli Hautala back on the line, let's bring in Emma Ashford. She's a senior fellow at the Scrocroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. Emma, welcome to On Point.
4: Great to be here, Magna.
2: So we'll pick up with the Heli as soon as we get her back here, but uh, she's giving us the Finnish or her uh, perspective as, as a Finnish diplomat. Can you uh, reflect with us on sort of what we've been hearing out of Sweden about the sudden surge the, the significant change in uh, public opinion about Sweden's joining uh, NATO? What were your thoughts on that?
4: You know, in, in both countries, um, but particularly in Sweden, we, we have seen the surge in popular support for the country to, to join NATO. Um, in, in effect, I mean, it's been growing for years, but in effect, it only really tipped over to majority support in the last couple of months, and, and in particular, you know, since the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And as Hallie noted, this has really, I think, moved the needle in both states in terms of populations that were relatively happy with their historical neutrality, now thinking, well, maybe NATO membership is the way to go.
2: Mm. Well, we are talking this hour uh, about NATO now and in the near future, as it looks as if Finland and Sweden are poised to join uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. So when we come back, we'll talk about uh, what that means, how it might impact how to achieve a lasting peace on the European continent. So we'll tackle that when we get back. This is On Point.
0: Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com OnPoint. That's Indeed.com OnPoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes.
5: ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balance scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balance scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the Balanced Scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are gonna affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're gonna affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, And explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company's gonna operate, what kind of big decisions it's gonna make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment.
0: Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at IBMS.bu.edu.
2: This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today it's part two of our little doubleheader regarding NATO. Yesterday we talked about the past uh, and NATO's expansion in the 1990s. Today we're talking about the possibility of NATO expanding... Yet again, as Finland and Sweden are on the cusp of joining the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, I'm joined today by Heli Hautala. She's a Finnish diplomat who has served in the Finnish Embassy uh, in Moscow, and she's currently a visiting fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Emma Ashford joins us as well, senior fellow at the Scrocroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. And Emma, before we move any further, I, I suppose I should just ask the sort of the the big question, because you know, for people who haven't been following. Um, the, the ups and downs of Europe's security architecture carefully. How significant is it? How much of a change or a big deal is it that Finland and Sweden are, are showing very positive, uh, affirmative actions to wanting to join NATO?
4: historically speaking it's a major change, right? These are states that for various reasons during the Cold War pursued policies of um, mi- military non alignment as, as Hal said you know they have clearly associated themselves with the West in economic terms um, but there's always been this resistance to go further to join um, NATO which is seen you know as very much one side of the European security architecture. Um, the fact that these states are effectively now moving towards taking taking sides in that way is a, is a notable change and I think says something about how isolated Russia has become from basically every other country in Europe.
2: Huh. So Heli Houtula, I, I think we have you back here now. I wonder if you could yes, actually describe... <laughs> my apologies for the, the technical errors. Um, but I was wondering if you could actually describe to us right now, what is Finland's own... Uh, defensive uh, and military capabilities, regardless of of NATO uh, asc- ascension or not?
6: Yeah, of course. I mean, I mean, Finland has a strong and credible national defense, which we maintained even after the end of the Cold War, when many other Europeans uh, made the decision to um, end the conscription and cut the defense budget. Finland never did that. So we still have a general conscription, we have a trained reserve, and the, the principle is that Finland is prepared to defend the entire country. And also, you know, there is a high will to defend the country, even if the outcome went uncertain. I mean, there's a yearly gallop done by official um, uh, outfits. And uh, they ask the question, are you willing to defend your country, even if the you know, outcome were uncertain? And three quarters of Finns answer yes. Mm. So that is the basic picture. So the wartime strength of the Finnish defense forces is 280,000 troops, which is sizable in European terms. Mm. We also have a strong artillery, one of the largest and best equipped in Europe. And also strong air defense. We recently decided to uh, buy 64 F-35s from the United States to replace the aging F-18 fleets. And we are also fully inter- interoperable with NATO forces because we've been partners with NATO for 30 years. And we have a sizable defense budget as well, you know, 2%. And, and they, they have increases have recently been you know, accepted. So in military terms, Finland is a strong country, which is fully capable of defending itself.
2: Okay, so then, then explain to me um, what exactly Finland stands to gain, then, by becoming a, a NATO member.
6: I mean, the number one answer is, it, is deterrence. I mean, the, the Finnish army, as it is, acts as a deterrent towards armed aggression. But obviously, being a member of NATO would increase the deterrence. And that is precisely, I think, w- which Finns now, you know, wish to have. I mean, the surge in support for NATO is incredible. The latest poll numbers published today, now it's 65%. And, you know, before February 24, it was never even 30%. Right. I mean, so
2: so ter- that- de- de-
6: yeah, yeah. So the deterrent, de- 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 I hate the word, but <laughs> deterrent effect is a big factor. And obviously the collective defense. But Pim's hope that we never get to the phase where the collective defense is actually
2: needed in kind of real military terms. Mm. Emma Ashford, though, let me ask you, is it obvious that there would be a deterrent effect, um, as Heli is describing? Because as both of you well know, and we we touched on at the beginning of the show, uh, rhetorically, Vladimir Putin has been saying for decades... Uh, that that he feels that uh, NATO encroachment is a security threat to Russia and that in part his uh, invasion of Ukraine is a response to that. So does it uh, – and, and now that he's done that essentially, as Heli so eloquently put it, there is a before February 24th Europe and an after February 24th Europe. Now that Putin has essentially crossed that Rubicon – can you bank on it on NATO uh, membership being a deterrent to Russian aggression anymore?
4: You know, I certainly hope so. But I do think that there is reason to worry as the alliance gets bigger and bigger, um, that it does become somewhat more difficult to deter Russia. Um, And particularly in the case of of Finland, you know, we were talking about the alliance, um, you know, perhaps gaining a very capable member state. um, But at the same time, we're talking about NATO moving right up to Russia's borders, you know, to sharing um, an 800 kilometer border with Russia moving within, you know, a hundred and something miles of St. Petersburg, Putin's hometown. Um, So, you know, there is the potential here. And and the scenario that I particularly worry about is, um, you know, we know know from past experience that the most dangerous period is the period between a state indicating interest in NATO um, and actually joining the alliance. And and we've seen wars fought in Georgia and then Ukraine twice um, in that period between between interest and membership, um, and so while you know this membership seems to be moving very fast, I would worry about that period before the Article Five commitment kicks in. Um, you know, and what would we do if Russia took steps during that period?
2: Mm. Helly, would you like to respond to that?
6: Uh, yes, that is the the question of the interim period between you know applying and actually becoming a member. It is a you know important question, and that has been discussed a lot in Finland as well. Uh, so far, you know, the the, the uh, kind of the opinion I seem to you know read and, and hear is that the armed attack against Finland is not likely, because simply Russian military resources are now focused on Ukraine. So any significant increase in troops along our common border is unlikely. But there could be something like troop movements along the border or increased military activity in the Baltic Sea or perhaps bringing new weapons systems closer to Finland. But that doesn't equal an attack. Mm. I mean, those uh, Russia will obviously take into account in its military planning then that Finland is NATO member, but we, uh, we have been so close partners with NATO. So many people assume that actually in Russia's you know, plans, Finland is already kind of regarded as a NATO ally. I see. So there is concern, but I think the noises which have been coming from Russia haven't been that concerning either. They basically been repeating during the last weeks that they don't like the idea, they would wish Finland and Sweden not to join. There will be these military political consequences and, and it has been talk about, you know, re- ar- rearranging, you know, troops and thinking about how to enforce uh, the areas close to Finnish border, but that is not anything kind of sort of alarming. I see, um, um, and uh, and no signs of increased military activity. There have not there haven't been any signs of that.
2: Right. Yes. Right now, but but so I, actually, can I go mm-hmm. back? I want to go back in time just a little bit here, because, um, Heli, can you tell us the story of? I believe it was a two thousand sixteen moment, because uh-huh. um, I'd like to understand more about what uh, Vladimir Putin himself has said about uh, the Russia-Finland relationship, because I, I don't know the quote exactly, so help me, but Putin had said something about when he looks across the border now from Russia to Finland, he was, he was see, Russia sees a friend. Was, was that right?
6: Yeah, actually, I checked it and he said he sees a Finn. So that was in 2016 okay. when he made a visit to Finland. He had a common press conference with our president, Sauli Nieniste. And one recurring issue in those press conferences has been that Finnish journalists tend to ask the question, what do you think about possible Finnish NATO membership? So in the summer of 2016, President Putin replied, as, as he said, that, you know, uh, when we now look over the border, we see a Finn. If you join NATO, we will see an enemy. But that's, that may sound dramatic, but on the other hand, in the Russian rhetoric, you know, NATO is already and has long been regarded as an enemy. NATO countries are enemies so in the sense it doesn't you know specify finland as something extremely you know extreme enemy he just wanted to say that we will move you into the same category as other nato countries and that will have consequences I see. because basically Russia tends to say that all the European NATO allies are just vassals of the United States. They don't have any independent foreign and security policy. They do the U.S. bidding. I mean, that has typically been their rhetoric for the years. So Finland, if and I hope when it joins joins NATO, so it may take get used to, you know, hearing those kinds of, um, you know, that kind of rhetoric about Finland as well. Okay. So we will be moved from a kind of nice neighboring country to a NATO enemy.
2: Okay. Well, we actually have another moment from that same press conference that uh, that we're talking about here. Again, this is 2016. Uh, and Vladimir Putin um, not only talked about changing, seeing a uh, Finns as potential enemies if Finland joined NATO. But then he also issued what sounds like quite a stark warning. So Putin here is saying NATO would probably be happy to fight Russia to the last Finnish soldier. Is this what you need? And then he goes on and he says, we don't. We don't want this, but you decide for yourselves what you need. Now, Heli Hautala, the reason why... We wanted to point that out. is not because of, you know, what Putin specifically is saying from the Russian perspective, but from the Finnish perspective, Article 5 works both ways, right? Could, mm-hmm. is, is, yes. there, is there a concern in Finland that, that joining NATO fully would uh, open it to being drawn into, you know, other conflicts, other wars uh, because of that Article 5 commitment?
6: People are aware of that, but I think people regard it as a part of the package, Finnish people fully understand that it is a two-way street. You know, if Article 5 you get protection, but you have also be, you know, prepared to protect. And Finland traditionally we have been a country respecting all the international obligations. Finland takes those things really seriously. It's part of our psychological DNA. So, uh, you know, Finns and, and it is being discussed. And those Finns who still oppose joining NATO, the percentage is now 13. So they they use this argument. They fear of getting dragged into conflicts, uh, but for the majority, they are you know willing to take also that part of the package.
2: Mm. Emma Ashford, help us think through here. Uh, I mean, we're obviously right now we're focused on defense um, and the, the military alliance that that NATO is. In addition, though, uh, given Europe's overall relationship with Russia beyond. That of a military, I'm thinking of energy in particular. Are there other risks for countries like Finland uh, and Sweden in you know in in joining NATO because you know Russia has shown it's willing to cut off energy supplies to countries that uh, uh, that are that are critical or allied against it?
4: This is where, uh, sort of as as Hallie alluded to earlier, this is where it gets a little complicated because both Finland and Sweden are members of the European Union, even though they're not members of NATO. Um, And so, you know, to the extent that Russia views NATO as a threat, or maybe it views the European Union as a threat. It's very hard to disentangle those things. Um, so, you know, you could make an argument, at least for Finland and Sweden, um, that the the risks of that kind of energy shutdown or economic action are not significantly higher than they would have been outside NATO. So, you know, I, I tend to think of that argument as less important in this debate. Um, and I really do think, you know, the focus should be more on the defense and military issues um, you know where, where there is this genuine debate over you know do the Finns and the Swedes bring enough to the table to offset the potential risks of having them in the alliance you know that's kind of the view from Washington is you know what are the risks and costs
2: mm, okay well Helly would you like to answer answer that question as well about sort of the the overall uh, potential again costs of NATO membership for Finland?
6: I uh, at this point, I mean there seems to be people are aware of the risk of having kind of cyber operations, more frequent airspace violations, you know further damage to economic relations, i mean to what it's left after the pandemic and eu sanctions against russia um, so there are various nasty things which Russia could you know consider as a countermeasure but um, but when it comes to energy. In that sense, uh, Finland is not very dependent mm-hmm. on, on Russian energy. I mean, we use Russian gas and we import electricity and some crude oil, but that's not um, we could manage. And we have a third nuclear power plant, which has just started to work. And I think it will it will be fully operational in the summer. So that will assist us. Um, even
2: further I see you know i I keep going back to something you said a bit earlier, Heli, uh, if I could, where you had you had uh-huh. talked about the 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 functional relationship uh, that Finland had uh-huh. with with russia for for more than seventy years, essentially until february twenty fourth of this uh-huh. year. Is there another option for Finland to pursue outside of NATO membership that would could both potentially uh, at least assure or strengthen um, Finnish security, but also maintain that functional relationship with Russia?
6: Well, there has been sort of a plan B, which is to continue strengthening the bilateral and multilateral defense cooperation we are engaged in. I mean, we have a very close defense cooperation with Sweden, also with the United States, the UK, then we are NATO enhanced opportunities partners. Finland and Sweden are NATO's closest partners. So they are the remain things that could be done in those fields as well. Uh, so that could be an option which would strengthen further Finnish security, you know increase security of supply and those kinds of things. But on the other hand, as I said you know earlier, those bilateral relations we had before february twenty fourth you know there's no going back uh finns have lost i don't think i don't perhaps a, almost all trust in russia i mean the Russian promises of having a constructive relationship i mean they don't have much weight now when it invaded ukraine and and broke you know <laughs> international the European security architecture. So if there was a possibility, if Russia hadn't invaded Ukraine, you know, perhaps we could have thought that, okay, it was threatening Ukraine, didn't invade. Uh, Perhaps there is a way back to, you know, what we had before. Uh, But now, you know, that option doesn't exist anymore. So you know, back to the fun, it, I think Finland tries to maintain a constructive relationship with Russia, take care of all the practical issues about the border and yeah. so forth. But that will take time. That right. is no immediate perspective.
2: Well, you know, Heli Hautala, um, what you just described helps us in the United States understand much more deeply about why this is such a seismic event, such a seismic shock in Europe, about not being able to go back to what it was before. So Heli Hautala, Finnish diplomat currently in Washington, thank you so much for joining us today.
6: Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure.
2: More when we come back. This is On Point.
4: A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains.
5: Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite.
4: I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide?
1: There should be some
2: This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Just a quick note about what we're doing tomorrow. We're going to look at something quite different. We're going to look at America's growing infatuation with Formula One racing because F1 viewership in the United States has hit record highs recently. But you can peg it to the launch of the Netflix series Drive to Survive. So we're going to talk about algorithmically built Fandom. Have you started watching F1 or that Netflix series Drive to Survive recently? Were you even interested in high-speed motorsports before, particularly Formula One? What pulled you into it? Call us at 617-353-0683. That's 617-353-0683. That's for Friday. It'll be F1 Friday here at On Point. But today we are doing the second part of our little miniature series here about NATO's past, present, and future, and focusing on the alliance's future today as Finland and Sweden are making all the right noises about wanting to join NATO. And one thing, a key thing that we haven't mentioned yet thus far in this hour is the United States, of course, and U.S. interests in a NATO expansion. Now, the alliance itself has long maintained an open-door policy to European nations. It's a principle that was instilled in the NATO charter in 1949. More recently, the United States, particularly Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, reiterates that open-door policy. And here's what he said in January.
1: Of course, it is for NATO, uh, not the United States unilaterally, to... um Discuss uh, the uh, the open door the open door policy. These are decisions that NATO makes as an alliance, not the United States un- uh, unilaterally. But from our perspective, uh, I, I can't be more clear. Uh, NATO's door is open, remains open, uh, and uh, that is our commitment.
2: I'm joined today by Emma Ashford, senior fellow at the Scrocroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. And joining us now is Wes Mitchell. Wes was assistant secretary of state for European and Eurasian affairs from 2017 to 2019 and co-author of a 2020 reflection report on NATO's future. Wes Mitchell, welcome to you. Thank
1: you for having me, Magna.
2: So give us your take then on um. Uh, What what you'd like to see is the United States uh, approach or posture to Finland and Sweden um, wanting to join NATO?
1: Well, it's a very important strategic question for the United States. And listening to the comments of your uh, your other guests, I have to say, on balance, I think it's a very good thing for the United States from the standpoint of our interests. Uh, Of course, we need all NATO allies to have serious military capabilities. and, And that's one way to look at this. But it, it would be very hard to make the case that Finland and Sweden don't, uh, that, or let's say that they would be net liabilities. Uh, Finland uh, has a no-nonsense defensive capability, nationwide per- participation in the reserves on, on sort of the Swiss or Israeli model. They have a very long border with Russia that's dotted with thousands of lakes and is very defensible. Sweden is less well-armed, but is bringing significant naval and, and especially anti-submarine capabilities. But there's a much bigger Strategic point for the United States, and it's geographic in nature, and, it, and and that is that bringing Finland and Sweden into NATO will mitigate, I think, the biggest military vulnerability that NATO currently has, which is the exposed uh, geography of the Baltic states. Uh, if you look at a map of Europe, the Baltic states are kind of an exposed salient uh, that sticks out, sort of, to the northeast on the northeastern flank of the alliance, and it would be. Uh, very difficult for NATO or for the United States military to get to those countries in a crisis. So adding Finland in particular mitigates that vulnerability. It makes the Baltic states a much less inviting target, which I think in turn uh, makes a war with Russia less likely, since we have to remember the Russian theory of victory uh, it, it, it is to create these fait complies where they, they grab a strip of territory, say Estonian territory, and they wait on on NATO to try to compel them to leave. I think adding Finland and Sweden makes that harder.
5: Mm. Uh,
1: and, and one final point, if I may, I think it, it's good for the United States for Finland and NATO to come in uh, Finland and uh, Sweden to come into NATO because it removes an ambiguity about those two countries themselves. Um, I, I understood Miss Ashford's point earlier. Uh, about the, um, this phase when, when states are thinking about entering NATO. But I would counter that with the observation that we have seen in history, that ambiguity about the commitment of a, a security sponsor c- can increase the likelihood of war. And I'm thinking of Belgium before the First World War. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about Belgium and, uh, and, and Netherlands in the Second World War. And it would be a hard question for the United States. How would we respond if Russia attacked, say, a neutral Sweden or a neutral Finland? That ambiguity could invite the very attack from Russia that we want to avoid. So on, on balance, I think NATO membership is good also because it helps remove that ambiguity.
2: Okay, uh, just to, to bring back a point that Heli Hautala had been making earlier, she objects to the word neutral being used for Finland or Sweden and calls them military non, militarily non-aligned because they do have strong alliances With Europe overall and and existing NATO partnerships as well, but but Emma Ashford, let me turn back to you here, and I appreciate your patience. Um, Given what Wes Mitchell said, one can also look at it as um, you know uh, Wes was talking about uh, removing ambiguity and covering um, sensitive territories, particularly uh, vis-a-vis the Baltics. But you're also expanding the size of the alliance as well. Does that not put potentially a greater burden on the United States if there are more countries with which Article 5 may be enacted.
4: Yeah, and I I think this is actually what makes the potential membership of Finland and Sweden um, a, a tough call right? Um, Many people who would, myself included, who would oppose NATO membership for Ukraine or Georgia, um, you know, because it doesn't add to the alliance's defensive capabilities, you know, Finland and Sweden are a harder case. They can bring something to the alliance. They can bring these capabilities, even though they may bring some risks with them. Um, I, I do think, however, that the notion that these states are going to bring something to the alliance is going to depend to some extent on whether European states are really going to step up and take on some more of the burdens of NATO membership, of NATO collective defense, um, or whether they're just going to fall back into these old pre-Ukraine habits of sort of free riding on American defense spending. And so, you know, Finland and Sweden, I think, would be a net negative if, you know, Finland in particular, if, if it's not going to increase It's defense spending, um, but they could be a net positive if Europe is actually going to contribute more.
2: Can we just talk about that for one quick second and then, Wes, I'll come back to you because it's bringing to mind what Emmanuel Macron said back in 2019 when he talked about NATO experiencing brain death. Now, he... The French president stood by that recently, you know, in 2022, and actually called um, uh, Russia's attack on Ukraine an electroshock, quote unquote, electroshock that would provide some strategic clarification, as he says, for uh, NATO's role here. But he also talked about uh, this is Macron saying we still need to rebuild a new European order of security, and the war in Ukraine makes it e- that even more indispensable. So. I mean, is there also at the same time this potential shift towards a more European centric NATO that might not require as centrally the United States?
4: That would be wonderful if it were to happen. And since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we have certainly seen more commitments from European states, more talk about shifting to this this European-focused defense than we have in, in previous decades. Unfortunately, you know, that we're also seeing America dial up its force presence in the region, you know, for obvious reasons, right? We want to deter Russia right now. There's an act of war that could spill over into NATO territory. Um, but that is going to make it much harder for European states to actually commit to spending more, to contributing more to the alliance. Um, and I do worry that we're going to end up back in this situation um, where, you know, NATO is... 32 countries with the addition of these two where internal debates are relatively incoherent because states see different kinds of threats and have different priorities. And America ends up having to step in and play the lead role simply because the alliance is too unwieldy otherwise.
2: Okay, so Wes Mitchell, let me turn back to you on that, because there's every possibility that uh, a future United States would not be willing to play that role. And the reason why I point that out is because uh, in the administration that you work for, it in, in the administration of, of President Donald Trump, the, the, Donald Trump was extremely clear and vociferous about his critique of NATO uh, and NATO member states. And there was even talk of uh, of of Trump pulling the United States out of NATO. We don't know who the next president of the United States will be. If it ends up being, I don't know, Trump himself or someone allied with Trump's thinking— I mean, could the United States just pull the rug right out from 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 under NATO? And what if uh, impact you know, would that have uh, on these you know, recently welcomed countries, given Russia's current belligerence? Well,
1: uh, let me start by saying I agree with Emma's point about burden sharing in Europe. And I think it's something that the Trump administration emphasized very strongly. Uh, actually, a number of U.S. administrations have done so with limited mm-hmm. success. But I can't say enough just how important it is from a U.S. strategic perspective that we see Germany in particular actually follow through on its recent promise to, uh, to actually meet the Wales defense spending pledge. Uh, it's Im- imminently reasonable for Americans to expect Europeans to carry more of the burden for their own defense. We have a $30 trillion public debt, we have a rising China, we have a military that's no longer capable of fighting two major wars simultaneously in Europe and Asia. I think also you can't expect Americans to continue in those circumstances to indirectly subsidize European social benefits while our sons and daughters share the uh, you know shoulder the bulk of the burden for the European continent. So uh, I, that's a way of saying I think the politics in the United States reflect that realization. It's a budgetary reality. It's a strategic reality. I think there is frustration. Um, but but I, I would just I, I would just point out that, successive uh, administrations have tried in in different forms, different ways, all the way back to the Cold War, to convince the Europeans to do more. Trump made that point, certainly. Obama made the point in 2012. Obama actually withdrew 10,000 U.S. troops from Europe. Bush made the point at various NATO summits. Uh, If you go back to the high point of the Cold War and look at the balance of payments crisis, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson even threatened to withdraw all U.S. troops from Europe. So I think the key point, and we have to keep this in proper perspective, is that um, the United States has to be able to retain and assure our European allies Mm. about our commitment to their defense. But we also have to motivate them. We have to motivate them to do more. And that is a famously hard uh, balance to strike uh, in strategy and in politics, again, all the way back to the Cold War. Um, So I think American politics reflect that. And there's a lot of turbulence in our politics, but I think on balance, most Americans see the value uh, uh, strategically and militarily to having a unified West with strong military capabilities alongside the United States that can handle Russia, but it also helps free up uh, bandwidth for the United States to focus on China, and we have to keep that in mind.
2: Mm. Uh, You know, Emma Ashford, I... I want to just step back here for a moment and, and, in a sense, refocus on one of the central questions that we've been trying to, to explore in these past two days of talking about NATO. And, and um, our news analyst, Jack Beatty uh, drew my attention to something that George Kennan wrote. He's the Pulitzer Prize winning historian, former diplomat. And um, during the Cold War, he was an ardent champion of Soviet containment. But in 1997, Uh, He wrote of NATO's expansion then, he wrote this in the New York Times, that it would be the most fateful error of American policy in the entire post-Cold War era and would inflame the nationalistic, anti-Western and militaristic tendencies in Russian opinion. And then later on, he talked about the expansion as a tragic mistake, a new Cold War. And he talked about the Russians will gradually react quite adversely uh, and it will affect their policies. So that's what George Kennan wrote in 97, 98. Uh, Is NATO expanding potentially into Finland and Sweden going to redouble what Kennan observed could happen in Russia and did indeed come to pass? So... You know, I'm not
4: convinced that adding Finland and Sweden will make the problem worse because, to be honest, I think given the situation today, it's already about as Bad as it could be, short of a actual war between NATO and Russia, um, but but I do think you know there's been a lot of attention over the last few months on how NATO is back, NATO is strong. Um, you know, talking about leaders getting together and working on problems, um, and I, I think we should be more cognizant of two big problems that actually remain. One is one is the problem that you've just outlined that NATO has largely served to push Russia out of Europe's security architecture. Europe doesn't have a place, a seat at the table in European security anymore. Um, And obviously, while this war is going on, that's not something that can be remedied. But as we go forward and after the war, that's something that we're going to need to think about um, or, you know, Kenan may well be right, and, and this could get worse. Hmm. Um, and then the second point that I do think we need to think about is um, we, we need to think about the future of the alliance. Um, one of the things that expansion has done, as, as I said before, is make this alliance huge and unwieldy and, you know, full of internal inconsistencies and incoherences. Um, And NATO needs reform if it's going to be fit for purpose for the rest of the 21st century. And so I think we shouldn't let all the agreements and the sort of glad-handing among leaders that we've seen over the last couple of months fool us into thinking that those problems don't exist over the long term. Right.
2: Wes Mitchell, we've got about a minute left. And first of all, I just want to say I appreciate you mentioning China, right, because they There is a dramatic difference between, uh, you know, NATO's formative years uh, post cold uh, during the Cold War at the end of World War II, And now the United States has this sort of has to balance multiple poles here or try to. But I'm going to give you the last 30 seconds here. Just your final thought on um, on NATO's immediate future and what you'd like uh, the alliance to do.
1: Yeah, look, I think we need a stable fulcrum in Europe from which we can shift as much attention as possible to deal with China. Uh, I think a consolidated uh, NATO that has serious defensive capabilities, as the Germans are now promising, uh, could could be a huge step in that direction. And so, you know, last note being positive, I guess you could say that Putin's war, at least so far, has done more to increase NATO's relevance and ability to defend itself than than many, many years of of uh, of effort from the United States and other allies. So. It's a step in the, in, in the right direction, and I think we should build on it in, in terms of what NATO is willing to do now.
2: Well, Wes Mitchell, Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs between 2017 and 2019, thank you so much for joining us today. And Emma Ashford, Senior Fellow at the Scrowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. Emma, it was a great pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes.
5: ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balance scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balance scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are gonna affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're gonna affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company's gonna operate, what kind of big decisions it's gonna make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment.
0: Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.